Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, product launch rebels. This is John Benzik from Venture Superfly, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage even when you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to the CEO and founder of Boundary Waters Brands, or as most of us know it, Joya All Natural Soda. Bob started Boundary Waters Brands in 2010 after it was common for him to create sparkling drinks for friends offering fruits, herbs, and spices to his various concoctions. In fact, when it first came out, Joya was named Best New Carbonated Soda by the media company BevNet. Bob is a successful marketing executive with global expertise and boardroom experience. Prior to Joya, Bob has worked with companies such as General Mills, Kraft, and some major advertising and marketing firms. Bob, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure. Bob, are you a creator at heart? Was it your destiny to create and launch something like Joya? Yeah, I would say that it was. You know, throughout my career, I've I've always sort of looked at everything as to how I might do it differently or better. Um, always kind of trying to reinvent everybody's business. So, um, even when I was in the advertising world and, and more of a consultant to brands, it was always like, here's a way to do this better. Um, I saw several of my ideas over the years go on to be successful by other people and just have never really been in a position to do something myself. And, you know, five, six years ago, I decided that if I was ever going to try it, I better try it now before I got any older. And, uh, so that was really the the motivation behind, you know, moving forward. How did you come up with the idea in the first place? I explained a little bit in the introduction how it came about, but why don't you tell your part of the story? It seems to be a fascinating story. <laughs> well, it, it, it's slightly different um, than what you had uh, just talked about, but, but certainly along the same line. Um, I had quit drinking alcoholic beverages about 15 years before we created Joya and was constantly frustrated with the lack of anything interesting and fun to drink uh, that, you know, you could buy in a bottle or a can and, and have the convenience of those sorts of products. I was always having to make stuff up at home. Um, so I was, I was concocting my own versions of Joya in the kitchen basically for myself to have when everybody else was having a glass of wine or a glass of champagne or a cocktail. And, um, you know, so against that backdrop, I was um, with some friends one night in a local restaurant bar called the Bradstreet Craft House, which was known for its mixology at the time. And the uh, waiter brought a little sample of a cocktail to the table, um, kind of an amuse-bouche, um, which I suggested at the time they actually rename and call it a moose booze. Um, but anyway, it was a little sample of a cocktail that I did take a taste of, and it was loaded with 
not only fruit flavors, but also herbs and spices. And for some reason at that moment, I just sort of clicked in my brain that, you know, why couldn't we create a soda that was just like these cocktails, just minus the alcohol. And that was sort of, the, I guess, the moment of inspiration um, against which everything else followed. Interesting. And a lot of people have those ideas, those types of moments in their lives. Yeah. But very few take it a step further. So what made you take it that step further and get serious about it? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things. You know, one, I mentioned that, you know, you asked if I was a creator, and I said, yes, I think so. And, that you know, I've always sort of looked at the world that way with, you know, what would I do here? And, um, you know, and, and sort of always had this belief that someday I would start my own deal. And so, you know, at that point, um, you know, I really spent a couple of months. I've been in, you know, corporate marketing jobs for my entire career, 25 years at that point. And, um, you know, I really just spent a couple of months thinking about whether I really wanted to try to start my own deal. But at the same time, I was also, you know, meeting and networking, um, you know, in ways that were related to the company and, and sort of serendipitously over the course of that summer, several things happened that just started to make it look like, you know, the stars were sort of aligning. Um, I got connected to a guy named Joe Heron who had founded a product called Air Force Nutrisoda, had sold that, had moved on to a second beverage called Crispin, which he had subsequently sold to, to Miller Coors. So a serial entrepreneur in the beverage area, you know, and he introduced me to a lot of folks. I, I also, in a, in a very uh, sort of amazingly coincidental way, got connected to a guy named Dan Oski was a prominent bartender and mixologist here in the Twin Cities. And, and you know, we sort of started talking about this idea, and he was excited to get involved. And um, one of the friends that I was with the night when inspiration struck at the at the Bradstreet Craft House, um, you know, was willing to sort of join in with me and help fund it for a year. So it, it just over the course of a couple of months, while I was thinking about whether this was the right thing to do, I also got you know, sort of network to several people that were going to help it uh, come to fruition. Was and, there was there a moment that made you realize this is going to be for real? Um, interesting question. I've never been asked that before. I would say the moment when that happened was, so we started working on the product in earnest in September of 2010, and it took us about eight months to do everything that happens, <laughs> you know, from uh, developing the product, using some consumer research, refining the product, you know, ultimately selecting the four varieties that we were going to launch, um, figuring out who was going to produce it, where we we're going to buy all the ingredients, the marketing materials, developing the branding, you know, all that kind of stuff took about eight months. And when we launched, it was just prior to the 4th of July in 2011, literally, Five years ago, like this week, um, we launched the product and we did some sampling out at the Lake Winds Co-op in Minnetonka. And it was a three-day demo event, actually. We were there for like four or five hours a day for three days, <clears throat> excuse me, leading up to the 4th of July. And 
sampled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and I think in total helped them sell 80 cases of soda, nearly 500 four-packs of soda over the course of those three days. So people were tasting it. I always said it was like a church revival meeting. I mean, the enthusiasm and the excitement of people when they're trying the product has just always been amazing, particularly in this part of the country. When we do that in L.A., the reaction's not necessarily quite the same. People are a little too jaded out there. But, um, you know, here it's, we've always had that kind of reaction to the product. And it was kind of at the end of that, it was like, well, I don't know if it's going to sell. Then we went and we did the demo, and it was like, I think this is going to sell. I think this is going to work. So I would say that was, it wasn't really in the course of development so much as it was the first big proof point of how people are going to react to the product. When you were at Lake Winds, Bob, and was experiencing that, what did it feel like as an entrepreneur to be at that point? Well, those of us who have ever taken any psychology probably remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs from Psych 101. And, you know, that top level of the pyramid, I think, I think they call it, uh, what is self-actualization or something like that. Um, you know, I, it was sort of like that. I mean, I think as a marketer, normally you're marketing somebody else's products that you may or may not have all that much of a personal connection to. And I think, um, you know, when I first went to General Mills, I had had very little experience in my life with the cereals that I was working on because I didn't happen to be a cereal kid. And, you know, so I was working on brands that, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have that much of a connection to it. When you learn, regardless, you learn how to, how to do that. But, you know, here was a case where I turned an idea or an inspiration into something real that was sitting on a shelf in a grocery store that people were, you know, grabbing as fast as they could um, and loading up their carts. And that was, um, you know, a pretty heady sort of situation, I guess. And whenever I walk into a store or somebody sends me, you know, I've got friends all over the country and I'll get text photos of, you know, oh my God, I found Joya and, you know, such and such. We were, a week ago, we were entertaining the, the daughter of one of my college roommates and her boyfriend, and they happened to be embarking on a bike ride from the Twin Cities to Denver. Um, via the Dakotas in Wyoming and Montana. And they had were on like the second day of their bike tour and they were someplace and um, not quite sure why they went to Wisconsin first in order to go to Fargo. But nonetheless, they had, and they were in some little, you know, small town in Wisconsin with a little market and there was Joya, you know, and they sent me a, a photo of it. And, you know, I, that happened several times a week. And, you know, it's always... Um, a great feeling to, you know, see your product out there when you're, you know, when you're least expecting it. Yeah, just the reality of it is is an exciting moment for sure. When I had a snowboard clothing company, it was fun just to be out and about and see somebody walking down the street see with somebody wearing it. Yeah, somebody wearing it, and imagine. I would think, I would yeah. think, oh my gosh, I I actually ended up making somebody buy something. It's amazing. So, Bob, I want to ask you a question about, given your marketing background as an executive and a very successful one, and the fact that you have advised very uh, significant brands in the past, but now here you are launching your own product, I'm wondering if you took your own marketing advice 
in all ways, shapes, and forms when you launched Joya? Well, I think one of the one of the very first things I learned in marketing um, when I got to General Mills, a brand manager, my brand manager said to me, he said, you know, remember that you're never the consumer. Your job is to figure out what the consumer is thinking and wants and needs. It's not to place your own needs and wants, you know, uh, on the product. And I think that's a particularly, you know, sort of challenging construct because here is a product that, you know, really did get created for me, right, in a way. Exactly. Um, and yet, you know, I'm still not the consumer. You know, I'm still not the consumer out there that's, you know, buying this product every day. And I would say that there have been times over the years where, you know, strategically we've believed one thing that, you know, at least was somewhat influenced by, you know, my own, uh, you know, my own thoughts and beliefs about this product. And, you know, that's proven to be maybe not the best way to think about it in the marketplace. And we've had to adapt to that. I think, I think, you know, more specifically, you know, I spent a career in marketing, but working for progressively smaller companies, um, but even the last company that I worked for when I got there was more like 35 or 40 million in sales. Um, I was only the second marketing person there, but 35 or 40 million in sales. And that is still a very, very different world from the startup world. I think one of the things we've learned, and I think a little bit it's unique to the beverage business, but I think a lot of it is is just reflective of or endemic to, you know, the, the world of startups in any business, we have absolutely zero leverage. Even when we're paying for stuff, we have no leverage. Take our cans, for example, that we're, you know, working on for a new product that we're launching. There's so much demand for uh, aluminum cans right now, particularly the the sleek, what they call slimline or sleek type cans. And as as a paying customer, I have zero leverage over the company that the companies that source those, produce those. And so that's been a kind of a rude awakening. And I would probably say it's the single greatest lesson that I've learned, which is don't assume you have any leverage anywhere, anytime, even when you're paying the bill. Do you think if you waved a magic wand and went back to being a market ex marketing executive or an advisor in a consulting role, how do you think your marketing expertise would be different does it make you smarter? Does it make you better, more efficient, more effective? Well, I think, you know, let me let me talk about a particular challenge that we have as a business. And maybe maybe because I was the founder and creator of this thing and it was a product that was sort of created for me, um, you know, and people like me, um, you know, maybe that factors in a little bit and, and clouded judgment a little bit. I think the way the public view of sugar has changed over the last five years is something that I was a little bit blinded to because I am a, I am a, as a consumer and somebody that kind of believes in the everything in balance perspective. I want food and beverages to taste good. I want a beverage like Joya to be refreshing and I'm not going to compromise that. I'm not going to drink six of them a day but I'm not going to compromise that. I don't want to drink a prescription 
I don't want to drink something that leaves me thirstier than I was before I drank it. And there's always been this, you know, first it was, you know, it was the industry was all obsessed about fat and then fat became, you know, it's really not so bad anymore, particularly as you understand the different kinds of fat. Well, you know, the industry, people, consumers don't really have any expertise around sugar either. And depending on what part of the industry you're talking about, they try to create different perceptions related to sugar. And, you know, the net effect of it is, is that people are moving rapidly, you know, in the, in the direction away from sugar. And for me, it was just these kind of drinks have a place in my life and I'm not going to walk away from them completely. Um, you know, whereas we have, you know, now significant segments of the population that are, you know, basically rejecting whether it's a Coke or a Joya doesn't matter. They're rejecting them. Even though we have less sugar than they do and we have a better form of sugar, they're still rejecting the product out of hand because it's got sugar in it. Ken Powell from General Mills was interviewed a few months ago in the Star Tribune and he made a similar comment. He just said, we've never, as a company, never seen a nutrition trend take hold as quickly and as uh, significantly as the, the sort of the anti-sugar sentiment out there in the marketplace. And we're, you know, like other beverage companies, we're trying to come up with the solutions to that and believe that still people still want great flavor and want refreshment and refreshment comes from sweetness. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out we've got two 60 calorie versions of Joya that are amazing and they're still natural because we use Stevia to sweeten them. But Stevia is a tough product to formulate with and to trade, uh, to try to come up with a zero calorie product using just Stevia as a sweetener is a, is a huge obstacle. And the few companies that are out there in the marketplace um, you know, we'll leave that up to the consumers to decide whether they think the product is good or not. My personal opinion is they're not very good. So I think there's still, you know, sort of the holy grail out there of uh, great tasting, refreshing uh, beverages, sodas that um, deliver like a, a regular joy or a Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, have little to no actual sugar in them. Right. Um, you know, but we're not there yet today, and I don't believe uh, very many companies are. We're, we're very proud of our 60 cal, but that's still got some sugar. That's obviously a marketing challenge that you didn't foresee. And so tell me a little bit about maybe another one or two marketing challenges that you face as a consumer products marketer and how you're dealing with them or how you've overcome them. Well, I think I think the next big thing is, um, you know, getting used to the lack of resources. Um, you know, anybody that's been a marketer for 25 years can write a marketing plan and, you know, think through various tactics and, you know, potentially with outside expertise, you know, figure out the right marketing mix, um, you know, to launch a product, create awareness, drive trial, you know, and, and keep the repeat purchase going. The problem is in a world where you have for marketing um, and you know first rule of food marketing is it's got to taste good well for something you know it's you know even there you got to create awareness for it you got to get them to taste it and you got to get them to want to buy it and you know high value couponing and sampling and you know those have always been sort of the tactic to do that um, and in our case 
um, you know, you really can't use couponing as an example because those are fairly broadly distributed and typically we don't have enough distribution in the market in a given marketplace to support that or warrant that. You know, so it, it you know, sampling became really the primary uh, vehicle for us to drive some trial. And, you know, we used that extremely successfully here in the Twin Cities. We, we sampled a lot of people in those first few months. Um, and it's been very hard for us to replicate that in other markets, partly because we're not in those markets and we have to hire people to do it for us. And that changes the economics. And partly because um, people in other markets haven't, I joked about it before, uh, people are just not as receptive to trying things. We're lucky here in the Midwest and that people are open-minded and they're friendly and they're outgoing and they like to walk up to somebody in the store and say, what do you got? Let me try it. Um, in LA, um, you know, you're lucky if you don't get slapped if you ask somebody, um, you know, if they'd like to try your product. So, um, you know, in other markets, we haven't been as successful with that primary way of getting people to try the product. And so we've had to get, you know, we've, we've learned along the way, for example, how critical it is to have distribution of singles of our product that gets into cold cases, refrigerated cases in grocery stores. So, for example, if you go into a Whole Foods in Los Angeles, ideally, they're selling Joya not just in the shelf, uh, off the shelf of the four-pack, but also cold singles in their deli area where people are coming in and buying lunch and dinner. And we do, you know, many multiples of the business, like two and a half times the business in a store, a whole food store that sells singles versus those that just sell four packs. So that was a strategy that, you know, we sort of learned along the way as it was becoming uh, impossible to replicate what we had done with sampling or demos here in the Twin Cities. Given the, the tight resources that is required to start a, a business such as yours, what has it been like to sell your idea? to investors, to retailers, to distributors. What was that experience like for you? Challenging and frustrating. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of look at it by group. Probably retailers have been the easiest because at the end of the day, it is all about taste and joy tastes phenomenally. The industry has recognized that. We've probably won more awards based on taste. You referenced the first one that we won, Best New Soda, um, you know, back in 2011 by Bednet when we launched. Beverage World the following year, maybe it was the year after that, named us the best. Uh, we actually won a global competition as best in show across all beverage categories, including wine and beer, wow. spirits. We, we've uh, special the Foods Association, which is just going on now in New York. Uh, two years ago, we won Best Cold Beverage at that show. So we, we continue to be awarded for the taste of our product. And most people, when they taste it, just go, oh, my God, you know, this is amazing. Um, and fortunately, the retailers do the same thing. Um, that That is a huge driver um, for retailers to make the decision whether or not to bring in the product. I think, you know, the more challenging group is on the distribution side. Typically, the way to build these sort of brands has been to get what are called DSD, or direct store door 
distributors, and those are guys that classically have been beer distributors. And, you know, grocery stores don't want to mess with having big, heavy, breakable product in their back room in their warehouse. And so the, the soda guys, the beer guys have historically, you know, driven up in their truck and, you know, they bring in the cases of product that you need and they stick them on the shelves. And the grocer doesn't have to touch it much. And, you know, as a result, the grocer makes a little bit less in margin on those products. Well, you know, we got lucky here in the Twin Cities and we got connected to the local guys, in this case, Capital Beverage and Thorpe and College City, who are the three Anheuser-Busch beer distributors in town. And they got very excited about the product. And, we, you know, we've for five years now, we've had them as our distributor, primary distributor here in the Twin Cities. In other markets, it's been very, very, very hard to land those kind of distributors. Um, and, and there's a myriad number of reasons that are specific to the beverage industry as to why that's the case. But one of the big ones is consolidation, and they just don't want to help build small brands anymore. There's been kind of a history there of, you know, they get on board, like, say, a vitamin water. And they work very hard and they build those brands and they become the very lucrative brands. And then those brands get bought, um, you know, by Coke or somebody and they lose the distribution <laughs> component to it. And so, you know, there's feelings sort of jaded by that. And because of the consolidation, they have enough leverage and power that they can just say, no, we're not doing it. And so we have to put together, you know, different sort of distribution solutions in every market. Uh, as far as investors go, I was very fortunate to have a, a strong connection to a network of, of friends and former you know, college um, uh, friends who, generally speaking, have been successful and were in a position to you know, make small investments in a company like this. And you know, that sort of got us going. And I also was connected to a former associate of mine from General Mills, a guy named Brad Bloom. Brad had gone gone on from General Mills to be president of Olive Garden and, and vice chair of Garden Restaurants, which was the, the group that owned Olive Garden. Um, and then ultimately was the CEO of Burger King for a while, as well as several other restaurant companies. And Brad, I didn't know Brad well when I was at General Mills, but I know him a little bit. And we got reconnected and he fell in love with the product and he's been our largest investor to date and has been, you know, just a, a dream to work with in terms of his support of the company. So I've been pretty fortunate <clears throat> on the investor side. And, you know, I think, I think when you love your product, um, you know, it's pretty easy to go be the pitch man for that. Um, and I also was spending 15 years in the marketing communications business. I was, you know, constantly doing business development <laughs> and new business pitches. Um, and so it's, you know, it's probably something I'm pretty good at. Absolutely. So I have a couple more questions here for you. Who has been most influential to you in your professional career and why? I would say two people. I mean, as I, I'm going to keep this on the professional side of things and I'm not going to answer with, you know, my mother or you sure. Know, but like feel that. free to say that as well. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna keep it on the professional side. Sure. I think you know, as I think about probably who's influenced most how I think. I, I think the first brand manager that I worked for at General Mills for the 
first year that I was there, really laid the groundwork for some of the very fundamental beliefs that I had about marketing and and being in the business world. Um, I referenced one of them before about, you know, don't ever think you're the consumer, as an example, Um, and then try to place your own values and beliefs on that. Um, So I would say um, that person, her name happened to be Sandy Nelson. And um, the second would be, I spent four years at a company here in town called Finger Hut. Um, that's now a brand of a company called Bluestem. And, you know, Finger Hut had been a huge catalog marketer for decades and decades and, and uh, was almost shut down around 2000 and then restarted <clears throat> venture capital backed, um, you know, in sort of the new world post-2002. And I came in as the, the chief marketing officer and was there from about $150 million in sales up to about $500 million in sales back between 2005 and 2009. And um, the CEO, who I reported to, uh, a guy named Brian Smith, really taught me about business above and beyond you know, I had I had full revenue responsibility for the entire company, and I had responsibility for the second largest cost category after the merchant, you know, merchandise group. And um, you know, I learned a lot in those four years about business and and you know, sort of managing a P and L and the broader aspect of financing a company. Um, you know, on and on, not not specifically the marketing piece, but more the business side of things. And Brian, his name is Brian Smith, and Brian is on my board today and is an investor in the company. What have you learned most about yourself since starting Boundary Water Brands? You better figure out a manageable way to handle stress. <laughs> Interesting. Because it's at unprecedented levels. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, when it's your own deal and the, the money takes on the value that it does because it's come from people that you, you know, know and respect. And even if they're, even if they're new to the game in the beginning, you know, within short order, they become, you know, pretty important, um, you know, as friends or, or close business associates, you know, whatever. Um, you know, they just the entire world that you operate in uh, just generates, you know, everything is, is very difficult, frankly. Um, things don't go smoothly. You don't have leverage. And it's, you know, it's, it's a tough world. And if, if you don't learn to really distinguish just the absolute most critical success factors, i.e. the things that could tank your business, and, and let everything else go. It's going to be okay. We'll work through a solution. You know, don't lose sleep over it. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be driven insane quickly. So you right. really, really got to be able to put everything in its perspective and say, here's the one or the two things that I really do have to worry about nonstop <laughs> and ensure they don't happen. Like, you know, in our world, a product recall. Any closing one, two, or three pieces of advice for budding entrepreneurs out there? <laughs> well, I, I've tried to sprinkle those along the way. And I think, you know, number one, just to reiterate, would be that really learning to sort out 
um, those things that um, really are critical success factors for your business or, or looking at the opposite way that they could really jeopardize your business and, and keeping your focus on those and making sure that um, you don't, you don't uh, create problems for yourself with those things. Second, I suppose, would be um, recognizing that um, every that, that you really, even if you've been in companies where you know you're the paying customer and you've got some leverage in the startup world, you really don't have very much, and you got to think about everything that's going to happen from that perspective, and and um, you know try to figure out. Uh, how to manage that um, and in some situations will be worse than others. But, um, you know, so I, I, to me, those are, are the two, the two biggies. Well, terrific closing advice and suggestions from Bob Safford, the CEO and founder of Boundary Waters Brands and more specifically, as we know it, Joya the wonderful beverage company out there. Bob, thanks so much for being here. It's been a tremendous joy for me to uh, sit in and listen. <laughs> and I encourage well, everybody listening to check out joyalife.com and check out the the company a little bit more and see what they have out there. So, Bob, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.